0: Dear Lord God, thank you for all of your mercies to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the truths that you send us even through the language and the stories that the world tells. And we ask now, work through this story to speak to us of your great love for us and of your purpose and plan for our lives in you. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you think it's rude if I just ask them to step away from the door? Thank you, thanks, you, Michael. Um, so, now the big question is: Why would I ever teach a class based on a film? You you might come in on Sunday morning. You're going to expect to see, you know, a class on Hebrews. Where they "Thank you, Michael." A class on Hebrews, a class on Acts, a class on Scripture, and that really is, you know, the Lord uses teaching from Scripture to draw out from us to put the stories of our lives within the timeline and the framework of his big story in his revelation to his people Israel and then to us in Jesus Christ throughout time and space. So, so scripture is incredible and amazing and brings spiritual growth in just studying it because we see, oh, what's going on with me is a part of the bigger picture. God has got me, um, even though it feels like I'm totally lost and alone in this world. Well, so why then film? Well, film as well as other different art forms in our society today um, can work on us in that they tell us a story and in being immersed in the story for two hours, we find ourselves dealing with things that we might ignore, that we might not face. Um, issues come up for us that we might have shoved into the background or put on the back burner things that we might have forgotten about we might find ourselves um, having compassion on one of the characters being drawn in and sucked into their lives for two hours and then what happens to them can help us understand what is happening to us in our lives today and you know Jesus used stories to tell people about God's great love for them Jesus taught in parables we have parables in the gospels that Jesus taught and that truth in the story affects us on a different level I think than just telling us. I can tell you something's true, but if I make you feel like it's if, if I tell you a story where you realize, "Oh my goodness, this is true," it's going to have such a different effect on you. And I think that that's true in scripture where we have narrative. For me, the narratives in scripture, it took me a long time as a child when I was reading scripture to begin to really dig into Paul's letters because his rhetoric was so different than the narrative. On um, the parts of the Bible that are narrative, I just got sucked in. Genesis is like a great novel. I mean, you could read Genesis and there's so much going on that you're like, oh my goodness, look at these people, and you get drawn into their stories. So the stories, um, for me, for a while, spoke to me much more easily than the rhetoric. Um, don't argue me into a point of view. Woo me into it. And a story will woo you into a different place of thinking or believing. It is a less direct mean, to, mean of communication, um, but it is especially helpful in convicting us of, of sin. There's a big famous example of this conviction of sin through storytelling and scriptures. Can anybody, there are probably a couple, maybe if we do this you'll think of one that I haven't thought of. That would be really great. I've thought of one story in Scripture. This is the part of the Bible class where you feel awkward and you're like, Jesus is the answer. (laughs) right? (laughs) Okay, so think about David and Bathsheba. Remember that famous story of David and Bathsheba? How did David come to a moment where he, he was able to recognize and confess his own sin? It was when the prophet Nathan approached him. You can't just tell the king you're wrong, right? How do you tell the king You're wrong. Well, the Lord gave that prophet such wisdom that the prophet Nathan started to tell a story, right? He told the story about a man who had um, just one precious lamb, and someone came in and took that lamb from him. And the way he told his story made David say, what has he done? What he's done is so wrong. And then when Nathan said, that is what you've done, David was cut to the heart. Um, he was repentant in a way that he wouldn't have been otherwise. So we see this example of stories speaking to us, speaking to people in general, in a way that simple direct communication does not. Okay, so film itself is probably the pinnacle of centuries of storytelling. And I'll support that argument in a minute. But first of all, we're going to look at one specific story today. Um, and I started to do this series every year because I'm always intrigued by... Um, who gets nominated for Best Picture uh, in the Oscars. And I haven't always done just the Best Picture nominees. Sometimes the other ones are really interesting and can have um, stories that move us and that convict us and that draw us out of ourselves to look to God. So, So that's why I like, plus I just love film. So I'm going to give you a little disclaimer about this particular film, Birdman, is directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu. I'm not a Spanish speaker so sorry for butchering his name. I did my best shot. He is a Mexican filmmaker who has had great success within the international community and has even been recognized by the Academy before in being nominated for other films of his. Um, so Babel is one of his English films that you might know of. Um, he also did 21 Grams he, with Naomi Watts so she's in this film as well. This is his third film in English that starts with a B. So he did Babel, Beautiful, Birdman. And this is his first comedy and it is a dark comedy. And it is an R rated movie and so you might not say that's a Christian movie. And there will certainly be some language. I've tried to edit it out of the clips that I'm going to show you today. But my apologies if in in advance if I've let one slip, or if they let one slip. There's also a little bit of um, language about anatomy, which we are all aware of. Just going to be in there. He makes a really good point when he's talking about it, and so you'll see what that is when I show it. Um, So there's that disclaimer. I do not endorse some of the immorality or whatever's in this, you know, by by showing it. So that's my disclaimer. I always do a disclaimer when I show films. Second thing, spoiler alert. I will not tell you the ending because this particular film ends in a question mark. Um, Just like some of the parables, there's one parable that ends in a question mark in particular that I always think of. Um, Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal um, asks for his inheritance. The prodigal goes out and spends it in a far-off country. He then hits the bottom of the barrel and thinks, Uh, The servants in my father's house were treated better than this. I know what I'll do. I'll go back home and work my way back into favor with my father. I'll make up for having asked for my inheritance. I'll pay it back. And he comes back, and the father goes out to meet him um, and extends grace to him. There's no thought of him paying it back. And of course, the older brother cannot stand that the younger brother has received this grace when he ought to have received justice and judgment for his sin against the father and the father turns to the brother goes out and gets the older brother and says all that I have is yours and he's basically asking the older son I have forgiven your brother won't you come inside forgive your brother with me and celebrate question mark and it ends right there And the question mark is actually for those Pharisees who were charging Jesus and criticizing Jesus for eating with the tax collectors and the notorious sinners. Um, So Jesus is challenging the Pharisees with that question mark. And he leaves the story open-ended. We don't know how it ends. We never find out does the older brother go back in. So we're wondering. Well, this too is a film that ends with a question mark. And hopefully, if you end up going to see it after this, um, you'll have some tools to be able to look at this question mark with even though I won't make it totally obvious. But if I make it even a little bit clear, it's still worth seeing. Uh, this is one of those films that is just a masterpiece of, uh, you know, in terms of its complexity. Anybody seen it already? Anybody already seen Birdman? It was really. It was opened in limited release in October. It didn't come to Birmingham till November, and now it's virtually out of the theaters. You can still see it in two theaters: in Trust, one in Trustville and one in Alabaster. Um, but then it'll be online soon. So, all right, here we go. Or nine. weird film but it's also really hilarious especially the second time through after the first time the first time through you're thinking what in the world is going on some people have actually gone to this movie thinking it was the superhero movie it is not a superhero movie it is about a washed-up actor Michael Keaton uh, is plays the wash-up act washed-up actor in Inara too, the director said he would only do the film if Michael Keaton would play the role and this washed-up actor theoretically in the story. Um, his last big film was in 1992 when he did Birdman 3 and he made billions and billions of dollars off of Bird, all the Birdman movies, those comic book movies. Um, how interesting that Birdman is so of course obviously close to Batman and Michael Keaton of course played Batman in the 90s. So there's this idea that is this man, washed? is truth Um, What is real? Are we talking about reality here with Michael Keaton's actual story? turns out Michael Keaton as a person is very different from the character that he plays in this film or at least that's what they said in all the press conferences. Um, But that would be what you would have to say, isn't it? Um, So this character is dealing with this incredible anxiety Uh because he is no longer famous because he got pegged in this comic book hero role and they stopped making them because he had a lot of money and he thought well now it's really going down the tube as if it wasn't bad enough that I was only playing a masked superhero. Now I'm playing the fourth iteration of a masked superhero um, in a shoot 'em up up um, gunslinger violent comic book movie that sells like mass produced candy. So he, he has this sense of self. His question is where does his identity come from? Does his identity Come from this role or this? And no, that's the idea. No, his identity does not come from playing Birdman. Does his identity come from the fame that he had? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. He his identity and part of it is because he's failed at both of those things. Um, Birdman wasn't good enough for him. Um, the fame wasn't good enough for him. And in the film, you see um, some relationships were not good enough for him. He loved his wife, and. Yet he um, sabotaged their marriage. He loves his daughter, and yet he cannot engage her and um, communicate his love for her because he is so absorbed in this quest for meaning, in this quest for finding a sense of identity and a sense of worth based on what he does. Okay, so enough about that. We'll get into that more later. Um, I'm going to show you another. some of these images again of flight sorry about the underwear
1: (laughs) let's go back one more time and show them what we're capable of with a grand gesture flame sacrifice Icarus you can do it you hear me you are
0: voice he hears this voice in its in his head and it's the voice of the character birdman saying you're better than this go back go play this again give them what they want you could fly basically when you played me you flew and you see that the whole film is just contained within his own psyche within the psyche of this troubled anxious man. My intention was always to have the
1: audience experience the film through the eyes of Regan Thompson. I wanted to be navigating in the labyrinth of what he is going through. I always knew this was going to be hard to explain because the character in the film has so many levels, then the levels have levels. I'm trying to do something that's important. This is not important. It's important to me. Okay? This is a chance to finally do some work that actually means something. It need something to who? It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. What, Aljo, Kurt? This play kind of starting to feel like a deformed version of myself. It just keeps following me around. Look at me. Look at this. Uh-huh. I look like a turkey with leukemia. <laughs> you... you. Wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your Uh, adaptation? That's ambitious. There is something very real
0: and something very surreal about it. We were projecting reality with fiction in the film.
1: That wasn't an accident. I made it happen. Okay. Are you drunk? It's funny that it's twisted, that it's dark that's funny again. Uh, Why don't you get your wings in bird suit? We already
0: saw this part, sorry. Like children. Oh,
1: what are you looking at? I've never seen anything like this.
0: There's this, the layers, the layers and the complexity in this film make it one of those incredible pieces of art. Um, the director himself, basically, uh, um, theater and film nerds like myself can geek out on this because it was all filmed to make it look like it was shot in one take. So this is a device that was used by Alfred Hitchcock in Rope, but then you know they couldn't even; they could only do ten minutes of film before they'd run out of film. And but he would piece it together in such a way that the cuts between takes were so seamless. That you in the audience thought that the whole film was constantly in motion, and what that meant is that you in the audience you were constantly engaged. There was no stepping it back, there was no taking a break, and those taking a break those breaks can help you reflect on what's going on. What what Inera, too has done is he's created this suspense that just builds and builds and builds. With Hitchcock, it was a suspense and a thriller, so you're waiting to see the tension builds. Who's the bad guy? How d- who did it? How are they going to get it done? This, the tension is building and it's all this internal tension for the main character, for Regan Thompson. And the questions that he's asking are questions about his own meaning in life. We heard a little bit um, about that in um, that second bit. Um, where we saw this, where we see his daughter. This
1: chance to finally do some work that actually means something. It means
0: something to who? This is she harsh. It kind of means.
1: Before this the third harsh. comic book movie. Before people started to forget who was inside that bird costume. You were doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is going to be where they go to have their cake and coffee when it's over. Nobody gives a shit but you. And... Face it, Dad. You are not doing this for the sake of art. You are doing this because you want to feel relevant again. Well, guess what? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be relevant every single day. And you act like it doesn't exist. Things are happening in a place that you ignore. A place that, by the way, has already forgotten about you. I mean, who the fuck are you? Excuse me. Sorry. You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist you're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, then you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important. Okay? You're not important. Get used to it.
0: goes from comedy to tragedy, right? You see, even though it's all about his quest, um, each one of the characters is so fully fleshed out. She's been nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And if she gets it, that was so real. That was such a good speech. She's an excellent actor, even though she plays in Spider-Man 2. She's, in <laughs> But they're aware of that. She took a break from filming Spider-Man 2 to come and do this role. Uh, so Inara, too, is so aware of this reality outside the film and he is interleaving reality outside the film with reality inside the film Um, but that moment afterwards, not when she's angry and trying to tell him the truth, trying to break through to him, but that moment afterwards when she realized what the truth has done to him, um, what that she really is right and that saying it has hurt him so much or that that truth um, is exactly what he is grappling with all the time you're the one that doesn't exist, she tells them You're right, you don't. It's not important. You're not important. Get used to it. She had said to him, she said to him later on, she spends, well she's newly out of rehab. Um, She has some kind of addiction problem. She is newly out of rehab and she is serving as a personal assistant on this production. And so her plot line is very interesting. She has this thing that you see her doing where she's um, making these dashes on these on a roll of toilet paper. Throughout the film, if she's not doing something to work for the play, she's making these dashes on the roll of toilet paper with a pen. Little, like, on each square of toilet paper there are over a hundred dashes. And she said, her father looks at her at one point, she's been doing this the whole movie, he looks, it shows what kind of father he is. He looks at her and he says, what are you doing? Are you doing homework? And she's like, I, I don't, I don't do homework. I'm older than that, Dad." But she doesn't even go there. She just says, I don't, oh, no. They taught us to do this in rehab. These dashes represent the six billion years the planet has existed. Each dash represents 100 years. And then she breaks off the last little square. It's a whole roll full of dashes. She breaks off the last little square and she says, and this is supposed to represent the entire time us humans have been here. 150,000 years, that's it. I guess they were trying to remind us that that's what all our egos and self-obsession are worth. How profound. And she's saying this this to her father, who's got this major ego issue, right? Who's searching for self-worth who's so obsessed with his own career that he can't see the relationships right in front of him. He um, is so obsessed with um, trying to make something of his life And this obsession with trying to make something of his life, of his career as an actor, of anything, is something that we are each obsessed with in our own way, whether we are a famous actor or not. Um, And it it goes right in scripture. It's represented uh, almost exactly in the book of Ecclesiastes. This idea of trying to strive and strive and strive to have build up some measure of worth for ourselves in this life. And the, in Ecclesiastes, Koalath, the wise man says in chapter 9, All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are the same before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous, those who are righteous in their worth, in their deeds, and to the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Remember here when he's talking about sin, he's talking about those who are ostensibly sinful to the world versus those who are good people, really just good people like him. He's lived a good life. Come on, God, I'm a good man. Why are you doing this to me? Why me? This is an evil in that all that is done under the sun for all, the same event happens to all. What is that event that he's talking about? Death. Death Death happens to each one of us, whether we've lived a good life according to the world's standards, according to any standards, whether we've been famous in Hollywood or successful and meaningful on Broadway, um, whatever um, we are striving for, we're not going to get there. Um, and when we get there, it will then elude us. And um, Macbeth talks about this. Now I'm going to go with Macbeth. Oh, you're going to go with Macbeth? Well, Macbeth is actually quoted in this film. In the levels upon levels, the depth of his thought, there is so much to be chewed. Out of, this me, out of this movie. At one point um, Riggin, Thompson, Michael Keaton has an argument with um, Edward Norton who is supposed to be this method actor. Method acting is uh, hyper realism in terms of acting. It's what um, Daniel Day-Lewis uh, practices. Daniel Day-Lewis refused to change his coat and make his coat to be... Um, Actually, weather appropriate in Rome because he was filming uh, *Gangs of New York*. It wasn't in Rome; it was in Italy somewhere. He was filming *Gangs of New York* there, and he said, "Well, my character would not have had a coat that's this warm in the 19th century in New York. So I've got to wear this thin coat, even though it's freezing cold." And he got pneumonia on set, and he slowed down the, the production schedule. But that's the way he rolls. For *Last of the Mohicans*, he went out into the woods, and he, you know. Hunted deer, and that's all he lived off of. You know, he lived off of the land in the woods because otherwise, he felt like his per- his performance would not be realistic. He needed to do all those specific <coughs> physical things in order to feel it and really um, show it on stage. And method acting has its benefits, but it also has its um, its real you know, as an actor, it is not good in some ways, many ways. For that reason, because you end up doing stupid things like getting pneumonia in the middle of a production. And then also all of acting is playing make-believe. I was the best at make-believe as a kid. Why do you think I wanted to go into acting? Because it was one big long (coughs) make-believe. We're going to be in 19th century England? Great. Okay. Now we're in Japan? Wonderful. I got it. Okay. So there's this playing make-believe and Edward Norton is so good at playing make-believe that when he's trying to play drunk on stage he actually fills the bottle with gin because he wants to actually be drunk on stage. So of course he and Riggan get into this conflict and that's the beginning of the conflict between those two characters all the way throughout. And of course it has to do with egos because here's this big movie star who's not necessarily a method actor and then here's this Met that actor who's really good on Broadway, who sells tickets on Broadway, and so you see the conflict all throughout. But in as a part of this conflict, um, Riggin then ends up spiraling. He spirals, and he um, has this one moment where he goes and he just starts. Well, you see the fight between them. It culminates. It it doesn't quite culminate in the fight, but the fight is one step towards it. He also goes and just takes out his um, stress in a very unhealthy way, and he um, is drinking a lot and he hears this speech. You see him sort of bumble out onto the street in Times Square, which is surreal anyway. (coughs) And there he is in this surreal environment and you hear this speech done by the best, a really good actor. And it turns out that this actor is um, a homeless man standing on the sidewalk. And this is what he's saying from Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. From Macbeth the play within the play is a Shakespearean feature that Ina Ratu has borrowed in this play within the film. This idea of that quest for meaning and then that hitting rock bottom where you say, nothing I do will matter in this life because I will still die. It is right there in Macbeth's in that speech from Macbeth. So what is this all about and where is there hope in this, you could say, Deborah, where is the hope? Why would we want to see this? Where is the hope? Well, the hope lies in this question of what is real. Um, and in this way, Inaratu um, poses the problem, the director poses the problem of the human condition so well in this film that it is essentially the set just before the spike of the gospel. It sets us up to hear the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If all of our works in this life are ashes, dust, and meaningless, then we are so ready. We know that the only one who can save us from this is someone who is completely outside the system of um, seemingly uh, meaningless circles. Um, So one of the things that... said, and this shows me that he knows this quest. He knows that this is about a quest for meaning and a quest for validation. He understands the human condition. He, um, in this big long interview that's with the whole cast, Inaratu was asked, why did you have this play, this particular play within the movie? And the play that is within the movie is based on a real actual short story written by Raymond Carver. And there is this joke that Regan has taken on too much. He has um, taken this short story. He's adapted the short story, so he's the writer. He's the director. Um, And then he's also starring in it, which is way too much for any person to do well, by the way, P.S. So he's taken on way too much. But what is it that he likes about the play? Well, the play speaks to his own quest for meaning and for validation in the eyes of the world and essentially in the eyes of God. Um, and Inara too. When he talks about the play, he says um, this short story. This is Inara too speaking. Is not only one of my favorite writers, um, but he's my favorite writer because he has the capacity of going to the human heart and the flaws and limitations of human beings with love. Even when Carver's characters can be pathetic, they're lovable and adorable and complex and human. These characters in that short story are looking for love. What love is about. I wanted the play to be projected. I wanted Riggan to become one of the characters in the play. That particular short story became the essential quest of the main character in the film. That is what we human beings are looking for, no matter who you are. And that is what Riggan Thompson is looking for. Validation. Love affection. There's a beautiful moment in the film when his ex wife is there in his drawing room, in his dressing room and there's just she is loving him. He sabotaged their, their marriage and she's sitting there loving him and and he and he says, Yes, but what do you think? And she says, You could you never understood the difference between love and admiration. Basically, I can love you even when I don't admire you. I can love you even when I'm not a fan of your film. I can love you even when I think your play is going to tank. Um, And she tells him she still loves him, even if she doesn't admire him. He has found love, and yet he's still searching for that validation, for that sense of worth, for that sense of achievement on his own. And Inara, too, gets this. He goes on to say, All of us will fail in our solemn attempts to succeed and transcend in our stupid ideas of whatever is transcendent, transcendent art or money-making or whatever importance we think we are. Life will take care to tell us, no. Whatever it is that we strive for, what is it that you strive for that gives you meaning? Is it work, Um, your job, your relationships, well I'm a good parent, I'm a good daughter, I'm a good husband, is it, um, is it art? Here it is art for Riggan. If he could just make something meaningful about love, then people would love him. If he could just do this, then people would love him. If he could just do that, then people would love him. Well, Interatou's solution to this quest for love um, that is so heartbreaking, he says, I found it to be incredibly tragic, this quest but at the same time, beautifully funny. I think this film's a little twisted, he's right. I decided to approach these tragic events, this tragic search for meaning in a different way, upside down. I learned already at 50 years old that if you don't take life with that humor, not with cynicism, but humor, then you can't survive. He is laughing at himself. He is accurately describing the human condition, but he unknowingly shows its solution. He starts to get there through humor, because what is humor? We can't laugh at ourselves, then how can we get on our knees and repent? Laughing at ourselves is this step of humility that says, um, I'm not taking myself too seriously. I'm probably wrong. And this thing that I think is the best thing in the world that I'm striving for with all of my being could just crash and burn. That'd be okay because um, it's not about what I do and that uh, that gives us the freedom, that ability to laugh at ourselves is very close to that willingness to get on our knees and to repent. Um, humor requires humility. so He's a little bit right in that humor, but he's right in not even knowing it because of the way he depicts realism. This particular film is in the genre of magic realism, where there are magical or unreal elements, this voice of the Birdman, this presence of the Birdman who starts to make an appearance, the things that he's able to do, Riggan is able to sort of move objects at will without touching them, which it's hard to tell—is that in his mind or is that real? Can he actually do that or is it real? And um, there are some things throughout the film to suggest that it's all in his mind until the very end. There's one brief moment at the very end that suggests that the fantasy is actually reality, that there is something outside of him, something that doesn't make sense logically that is going on. Um, And it's that little glimmer of hope from outside of our realistic world, from outside of what we know as reality, what we can touch and experience, what we think we know, and it's that breaking in from outside the known world, outside this real world, supposedly real world, um, that brings hope um, and that gives a glimmer of maybe things are not as we thought. Maybe he will not fall, but he will soar. Maybe um, he will be rescued by a hero, almost like his own birdman, this imagined birdman. There is in this a Deus ex machina, which in theater and in film, that's a boring Latin term to describe God the machine, God coming in, because in um, Shakespeare plays and in ancient Greek plays, whenever the gods would appear, in um, modern critics hate this format because they say it's, an easy and tidy way to tie up the end of a film without having to deal with real resolution where the character um, pulls themselves up by their bootstraps and really faces what they need to face and they come through and they come out on top or they grapple with what they've been dealing with. The deus ex machina is God coming in to scoop us up and rescue us. And that is exactly what I would say Inaratu has done, whether he is aware of it or not. And in our lives, in our own quest for meaning, it is that Deus Ex Machina, it's God coming in from outside of us. In Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, God who is God, being born as a baby, being born as one of us, the writer of the film, the screenplay writer, walking on stage, Hitchcock making his cameo appearance, in his film. God writes himself into the story of human history when Jesus becomes flesh and is born as a baby in Bethlehem. And then through that, through Jesus Christ, through his work on our behalf, we are delivered from the consequence of sin from death, from judgment, from condemnation, from this endless cycle of creating meaning for ourselves based on this life and what we can do and what we can achieve in this life through our relationships or through our job. Where is our worth found? We will not stand at the last based on what we've done, but on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. As St. Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, he's telling Timothy. Share in the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages of began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel all die and yet in Christ through his work on our behalf um, the works of this world whether it's achievement in holiness and righteousness or achievement in fame or art or work or relationships is nothing As Paul says elsewhere, I count it all as loss compared to the insurpassable gain in Jesus Christ. All is ours in Jesus Christ, and the death is not the final word for us, but life and life eternal. So let's pray, and then you can ask me a couple questions if you want. Dear Lord God, in whatever quest for meaning we seem to have found ourselves on today or this week or every week, Um, Lord, would you give us grace in our lack, in our failures to achieve that quest, in our failure to live up to the standards that we or others place on ourselves, in our failure to live up to your moral standard. Lord Jesus, would you communicate to us your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you were the standard. You achieved perfect righteousness and you achieved perfect obedience to the Father through your death on the cross. And it's through your death, Lord, that we find life. And so we ask, let your cross be between us and judgment now and in the hour of our death, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Dan. Senor directed it. Yeah. But who wrote the screenplay? Ah uh, you, you were going to ask me that. I, for, I, I don't know, because it's a name I don't recognize. But he's written other really good screenplays, is what I do know. How about that? Or, who and I who think gives the, the genesis to
1: it? Is it the director, or was it the writer?
0: That's a good question. I think it's both. Uh, the, the writer, director, especially in a screenplay that's made straight for the film, you know, this is not adapted from anything. They made this just for it, and that's why I think it might win best screenplay. It's nominated for it. It is. It, it's a little bit of both because the director, even by the way he shoots something, he can change whether or not it's open-ended or not. Literally, it comes down to the look on the face of one of the characters. It is that specific and that minute. So um, it might have, m- might not have had to have even been written in there by the screenwriter. He might have made it so depressing, and the question would not have been a question at all. And yet the look on this one person's face makes you have hope. Makes you say, the fantasy. Person.
1: Will the screenwriter be recognized
0: like a record? If if the, if it wins best screenplay, he will. If it wins best picture, he will. If it wins best director, he won't.
1: It was co-written by. Oh, thank you. By the director, I well. did
0: think he had something to play. I'm sorry about not having my. It's, it's actually four writers. I, I, know, or, I yeah, I think I did <coughs> catch a glimpse of that, and
1: yeah, Carol. Do you think it was? it Seems like everything was planned in this, but I was struck when the daughter was making these. Comments having to do with his ego, and she was accusing him of, you know, being behind. He's not. um, Was that pointing out the ego um,
0: characteristics of perhaps the younger generation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. The the the. Powers of Be. The screenplay, you know, the screenwriters and the director are making a joke with that. You're supposed to laugh when she says that. You're oh, not even on
1: Facebook. You know, you I even not really you your and I get
0: a, a family. But it's almost accusatory. How yeah. dare yeah. you? How dare you? You're not even. How selfish of <laughs> you? It like, like, I You're don't not want you. can reach me with anything it. that really matters. You yeah, know? yeah. And he, he. he the irony, though, yeah. is in his little jaunt in his. Gibby's in Times Square. He becomes famous again because it starts trending. The video of his little walk starts to trend. You know, there was a guy in Times
1: Square a few years ago, a naked cowboy. Yeah, Yeah, he did. I know.
0: Yeah, maybe it is. Any other thoughts before I. Yeah, Michael.
1: I think one distinction between Michael Keaton and his character is Keaton actually started out.
0: did he really? I didn't know now, that. I think he
1: sort of fell into acting because he was in some comic movies and he was like, "I'm really good at this," and he sort of became a dramatic actor. He's actor fa-
0: he, well, some of the best dramatic actors, in my personal opinion, are actually comedians. Robin Williams, Jim Carrey is actually really good at drama. And part of it, as an actor, comedy is harder than drama because comedy it's even less real. And you have to commit even more to your actions. You have to commit to your action, even if you're a clown, and your action is as silly as going up to someone and honking their nose. I mean, that that is the commitment that com- comedy requires. And to do it well so that you actually get laughs is a lot harder than drama. Anybody can cry and, like, go there. No, Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you.